This morning's reading can, is come, comes from chapter 12 of Matthew, starting at verse 38, and can be found on page 1519 of your Bibles. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept, clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, And they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Thanks for reading, Joe. And good morning once again. Let me get myself organised here. Over the last few weeks here at Trinity Church Unley, we've been working our way through the middle chapters of Matthew's Gospel. Each week I've been asking you to look for the answer to a question that I think Matthew is asking us, and that is, what kind of a man is this? It's the question that Matthew is asking of Jesus. What kind of a man is this? I hope you've been getting to know this person, Jesus. I've called this series, Jesus, the Authorized Biography, because I think in these middle chapters of Matthew's Gospel, we really see Jesus for the man who he really is. This week, I hope that the key idea of the passage comes through clearly for you, and I think this is the key idea. It's don't sit on the fence. If you've seen who Jesus really is, don't put him off for another day. Instead, respond to him, follow him, join his family. And I think it's the big idea of the passage that Joe just read to us. Last week in chapter 11, we saw Matthew, the author of this gospel, give his answer to that question that we've been chewing over for a while, what kind of a man is this? And we saw Matthew tell us beyond a doubt that Jesus is God's King, that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that Jesus is the one who cures sin, the one who ushers in the new age, the one who will make all things right again. And really, since the end of chapter 11, as we've been working our way through these verses, we've seen Jesus demonstrating again and again and again that he really is that promised Messiah. We've seen him doing that through a whole host of different signs. He's 
cured leprosy and paralysis and blindness and deafness and muteness and and really every imaginable sort of sickness, Jesus has been able to cure it. Indeed, Matthew tells us at a number of points in these chapters that Jesus healed all the sick. And I've said this before, but in that time and at that place, the hospitals would have had no one in their rooms. The beds would have been empty. No sirens of ambulances. I don't think they had them back then, but there would have been no sirens wailing in the streets. There were no sick. It must have been remarkable. And yet, rather than seeing kind of ever-increasing support for this promised Messiah, we see as we work our way through these chapters, increasing and mounting opposition towards Jesus. seems that primarily that opposition comes from the establishment, from the religious leaders, the Pharisees as they're called, or the teachers of the law. And so despite Jesus doing the very things that fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, you can read about that in the early part of chapter 12 in verses 15 to 21, many just failed to see the signs for what they were, or they ignored them altogether. might sound a little strange for you. In our society, in our culture today, there is a sign that we basically just ignore when we see it. I've got Annika's going to put it up on the screen behind us. I think whenever we see this sign, we basically universally ignore it, don't we? 25 kilometres an hour, maybe we knock a few kilometres off. But we essentially ignore this sign. Well, today we've skipped forward a little bit in Matthew's Gospel. We've gone to verse 38 of chapter 12. I'd love you to read those verses that we've missed in the, between now Sunday and today, verses 1 to 37 of chapter 12. But today we're starting at verse 38, where we see the Pharisees asking Jesus yet again for a sign. Let me read to you from verse 38. If you've got your black Bibles there, I'd love you to open them. We'll be reading from the bottom of page 1519 this morning. It says this, Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It's almost ironic, isn't it? Over the last four chapters, Jesus has been doing pretty much nothing else other than performing signs that point to who he is. He's even gone as far as to raise a dead person, and yet the Pharisees ask for another sign. It's ironic, isn't it? But it's, it's also believable, I think. Perhaps the reason why they ask for a sign is that they're just kind of playing with Jesus now. They're trying to trap him into doing something that they can arrest him for. Well, but maybe you also can sympathize with the Pharisees at this point. Because it's always nice, isn't it, to be extra certain about something. I might be the only one who does this, but before I go to bed at night, I kind of walk around the house and I check the front doors locked, I check the back doors locked, I make sure the lights are off in the garage and that kind of thing. I do it kind of without thinking particularly, so that when I'm lying in bed just about to go to sleep and I think, oh, did I lock the front door or not? And I think, yeah, I did, but I try and put it to the back of my mind, but no matter how much I do that, I know eventually that I'm going to have to get out of bed and walk down there and check that the front door's locked. That's just the way my brain works. Because you can never be too certain, right? Checking again helps you to know for sure. Is that what you think is going on with the Pharisees here? Are they just checking again just to be sure that Jesus is the one who he says he is? 
if you've trusted in Jesus for many, many years now. Maybe in a moment of doubt, though, you've cried out to God asking for a sign of his existence. Imagine that many of us have contemplated laying a fleece out on the ground like Gideon, testing God, asking for proof. Do you exist, God? Or perhaps you've had a conversation with a friend or a colleague at work and have not quite been able to come round to the idea of there being a God in the world. And they might have said to you at some point, well, if God exists, if he's really there, if he would just show me, if he would do something, then I would believe. See, despite the clarity of hundreds of miracles that we've read about over the last few weeks, the Pharisees are asking for yet another sign. I think what's really going on here is a a refusal by the Pharisees to consider the evidence, to weigh it up. Grant Osborne in his commentary puts puts it this way, he says, my mind is made up, don't confuse me with the facts. My mind's made up, don't confuse me with the facts. Because you see, the evidence for Jesus, it really exists. The evidence for who he is, well, Matthew's shown us that clearly. When I was at university, one of the preachers who spoke there regularly used to have this phrase, he said something like this, all that separates us from the events of Jesus is a little bit of time and a little bit of geography. In other words, these events, these miracles, they are reliable. They are just as reliable as the fact that the West Coast Eagles defeated Collingwood in last year's grand final. Most of us weren't there. We don't even live in the place where it happened. And yet we trust that news implicitly, even if it disappoints a few of us. See, the facts of Jesus' authority, they are written in history. He is the Messiah. Matthew's gospel is evidence of this. It's not a story tale or a fable or a myth. It's reality. And yet, not everyone who hears will necessarily go on to believe. We know that because last week we read Jesus saying, no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And so many just fail to see the signs and what they point to. Seems to me that Jesus is not particularly impressed with the Pharisees. I don't know what you think as you read this. But rather than refuse their request outright, he actually obliges, doesn't he? He says, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus is essentially saying, one more sign will be given, the sign of the prophet Jonah. We read about Jonah last week, if you were here, uh, you may remember that. It's the sign, isn't it, of the deliverance from the grave. For Jonah, you probably know the story, it was deliverance from being submerged in the sea, swallowed by a big fish, in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights, and being delivered over from certain death. For Jesus, that sign is being submerged underground in death for three days and three nights. Now, for those of you who are counting in your fingers, trying to work out how buried on a Friday afternoon and rising again on Sunday morning can be three days and three nights, you know, now thinking it can't be, it's really only 36 hours. Why does Jesus say this? The answer to the question is that in Jewish thinking, a partial part of a day essentially counted as a full day. So although Jesus was only there for a little bit of Friday and a little bit of Sunday, in Jewish thinking that is three full days. I wonder if Jesus was thinking something like this at this point. There is one more sign. 
And maybe this is the sign that will turn their hearts and their minds. And that sign is the resurrection. So if you could ask for one sign to prove beyond a doubt that someone has the power over life and death, surely you would choose the sign of resurrection. Jesus claimed to be the way, the truth and the life. If he really was the one who brought life, then resurrection, well, well, that surely is the sign beyond all others that proves who he said he was. The early church knew this well. The resurrection of Jesus played a big part in the early church's teaching and preaching of who Jesus was. I want to show you that. Come with me, if you will, please, to Acts chapter 2 in your Bibles. Acts chapter 2 is on page 1,692. 1,692. And I want to read to you a few different verses, beginning at verse 22 from Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is speaking to the crowds of people who have just witnessed the fire of Pentecost. Speaking to Israelites at the time, he says, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Come down with me to verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So the early church knew about this. Essentially what they knew is that resurrection equals proof of lordship. And look how effective this was in their teaching. Verse 40, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted this message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Resurrection equals proof of lordship. The early church, they knew the importance of the resurrection. Those who Peter was speaking to, they'd actually witnessed the raising of Jesus. They'd seen him ascend. If you need one more sign, one more bit of evidence to know that Jesus really is the Lord and the Messiah, I'd love you to reread Matthew's account of the resurrection of Jesus. Look at the evidence clearly. Did it look like it was Jesus who was killed? Was he really dead? How could there be an empty tomb? Was it really his tomb? Was he really a flesh and blood person after the resurrection? Look at the evidence again. Peter tells the crowd, those who were there, who witnessed the resurrection, that God raised Jesus to life. And this is his conclusion, that all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. 
I think this is a great pointer for us in terms of how we might go about sharing Jesus with others. When you next get into a conversation with a friend at work or um, you're sitting next to someone on the bus and you just happen to be talking about this person, Jesus, if they ask for a sign, if they ask for evidence or proof of who Jesus is, love you to take them to the resurrection. Because there's power in it, isn't there? This is the definitive sign that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. And maybe even in your own personal life, you're the sort of person who at times has doubts about Jesus. Should I really be following him? Well, here's a great way to combat those doubts. Look at the resurrection. Go back and reread it. Look at the detail that the gospel writers have included. The evidence there to show you that Jesus was dead and raised. Rose victorious. Real, certain should bolster our faith and should give us great confidence. And if you've looked at the evidence, if you've seen Jesus for who he really is, then Jesus says, come and follow me. I think that's what this passage is saying, come and follow me. See, Jesus doesn't just want people to know who he is. Ultimately, he wants disciples. He wants followers. He wants people who respond to him as they should. We see that in verses 41 to 42 of our passage back in Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus uses two examples of those who have responded to God as they should. Jesus firstly reminds the people listening about the way in which Nineveh responded to Jonah. I read that account to you last week. The whole city repented. The whole city turned around and listened to Jonah's words and was saved. And so Jesus says, Nineveh will rise in judgment over those who hear and see who Jesus is, but don't repent. Or the Queen of the South, she's also called the Queen of Sheba, who in 1 Kings chapter 10 came to test Solomon with difficult questions. Remember, Solomon was the wise king of the Old Testament. Queen of Sheba came to test him with questions. And the Queen of Sheba saw the wisdom of Solomon and responded. She valued it. Not so the Pharisees who also ask difficult questions of Jesus. And so Jesus says, the Queen of the South rises in judgment over those who think they are too wise or over those who are too clever to accept Jesus. In verses 43 to 45, there's a kind of strange story about impure spirits being cast out. Have a look at that story. I wonder what you think it means. I reckon there's a purpose to this story. I'm not sure that the purpose is to provide us with like a detailed demonology or something about how demons or spirits work. Rather, I think the point is this. Jesus came casting out demons and bringing salvation. And having done his cleansing work, Jesus is saying, don't turn your back on me. Because if you do, your spiritual condition will end up worse than it was before. I wonder at this point if Jesus is really directing his story not so much to the Pharisees, but to the crowds who seem kind of to have grown a bit indifferent to what he's saying at this point. See, last week we saw it wasn't just the teachers of the law that were rejecting him, but the whole towns of Chorazin and Capernaum and Bethsaida. It seems to me as I read this that the crowds had seen Jesus at work. In a sense, they've been cleaned spiritually by seeing him at work. And, and here Jesus is urging them, having seen what he is like, to follow him wholeheartedly. It's not good enough just to acknowledge Jesus. Jesus wants followers. 
those who walk with him and live for him. I think this is a great reminder for us today, having spent some time dedicating Noah to God this morning. It's not enough, is it, that Noah would just, we just pray for him once. The Christian life is not one of just conversion, but also about discipleship. Jesus says in the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations. And here at Trinity Church only, I pray that we would not just see Jesus as Messiah, as Lord, but that we would walk with him day by day as his disciples, growing in love and knowledge of him as we do so. Things to summarize really well in Ephesians chapter 5, how we live as Christians matters. You don't need to turn there, but just listen to these words. It says this, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. House is empty. Jesus says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Live for Jesus each day. And together, build each other up. Speak well to each other. Encourage each other as you would those who are part of your own family. That's the last section that I want to look at with you today in Matthew's Gospel. Verses 46 to 50, I think, point towards one of the great benefits for us, the great rewards of walking with Jesus. That is, the promise of being incorporated into his family. Let me read these verses to you. It says this, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. And someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. I wonder what you make of these verses. Do you think Jesus is what we today call a family man? It does seem a little dismissive of his mother and his brothers. And the fact that they're outside and he's inside seems to suggest that his mother and brothers aren't kind of hanging off his every word like some of the others. This story is also told in Mark's Gospel in Mark chapter 3. The way that Mark tells it, it seems there's even a bit more animosity between Jesus and his mother's and brothers, mother and brothers. But here in Matthew, I think really the thrust of what's going on, the thrust of the passage, is positive. That is that those who follow Jesus, those who do the will of the Father, are incorporated into the family of God and gain with that the benefits of being part of God's family. Many of us have great families. What a privilege it is to be in a great family. Many of us have places, families where we find security and comfort. But it's not the reality for all of us. For some of us, our families are just distant, separated by many miles. Maybe we're emotionally separated from some people in our families. Here is a great promise of family with Jesus. Now, following Jesus comes at a cost, as it may well cost some of us a lot. Here is a great reward for us. I used to summarize really well in Mark's Gospel in chapter 10. I'm going to read these verses to you. Uh, may just want to listen along, or you can look them up in Mark chapter 10, verse 27. Jesus had been saying to the people at this time that it's easier 
for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples at this point are exasperated. They ask, who can be saved? To put another way, who can be part of Jesus' family? And this is how Jesus responds. He says, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And Peter spoke up and said, we've left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. See, for some of us, following Jesus might mean leaving home and brothers and sisters and mother. I know of one person in Adelaide for whom this was their reality. And yet Jesus says they'll receive a hundred times as much in this present age. How does that happen? Well, it's a great reminder of the importance of church, isn't it? And it's setting the bar pretty high for church at the same time. Noah, welcome in to our church. Today you've also received a hundred mothers. Fancy that. What a responsibility for us as well, for the fathers to take care of children here as if they were their own, for grandparents to take on more grandchildren, for brothers to adopt others. I wonder how you think we're going at this as a church. We're caring for each other as well as we could. I hope so. These are, in a sense, like aspirational verses, aren't they? I think it's worth mentioning that in a week where we've seen the catastrophic failure of some parts of a church. It's worth remembering that all of us are still sinful. And we should strive, shouldn't we, to be like family to each other. We may have made mistakes as to how we can do that. But the idea is that we would love and care for and incorporate each other as family. Jesus looks at his disciples and he sees them that way. So I want to encourage you today to look around at each other as you're eating a sausage maybe a bit later on, maybe as you're having a cup of tea and coffee. And I want you to see these people here as part of your family and work out how you can care for them as well as possible. Matthew's been imploring us over the last few chapters in his gospel to get to know Jesus as God's King, as the promised Messiah. He's given us all the evidence, I think, that we need to see this man, Jesus, for who he really is. Over the last few weeks, if you've seen Jesus for who he is, if you've seen him as the Lord and Messiah, I'd love you to respond to Jesus, to live for him. It might cost you. I think our passage today shows it's worth being counted as a brother or sister of Jesus. Let me pray for us that we would be like family to each other and that we would live for Jesus. Father God, we thank you for this passage that reminds us of the good things that are part of your gospel, reminds us of the good promises you have for those who put their hope and trust in you. We ask that you would help us to care for each other like family, We are sorry for the times that we've not done that as well as we could. Father, we thank you that the evidence is plain and clear that your Son is the, our Lord and Messiah. We pray that you would help us as a church to walk in his ways. Amen.